Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And uh, after being away from you all the last two Sundays in another country, it is really good to be back here. Um, there's something about being abroad that can make one appreciative of home even more, uh, even when that being abroad is to experience uh, such a beautiful country like Japan and to see a little bit of what God is doing there. Uh, even then, there is simply no place like home. And you all, church family, is what makes home home. And so uh, we love you. Uh, we're thankful to God for each of you all and for each of your ministries here. And you will have an opportunity uh, to hear a little bit more about our trip in the member meeting tonight. Uh, also, if you're trying to get to know more people at the church as a new member and, and really even as a member who may have been around for a little while or a long while, uh, the potluck after the meeting is a great time to do just that. I think it's an opportunity to, to strengthen existing uh, connections and also to make entirely new ones within the church Ohana. And so please uh, try and sit next to people maybe that you don't normally talk to. I think it'll be worthwhile and, and can make your love for our church uh, family increase more and more. If you can't bring a side dish, if you're busy or for whatever reason, that's okay. Just come for the fellowship. Um, and so please, I encourage you to do just that. Now at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 20 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 20 verses 1 through 8 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 879 if you are using a church Bible. Page 879, uh, Luke chapter 20 and verse 1. And before uh, we look at our text together, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and, and God, please um, help us not take it for granted that we can worship you uh, together so freely. And now as we come to your word, we ask uh, for grace to understand it, uh, we ask for grace to really apply it, and we ask for the strength of genuine conviction. Uh, your word is not effective in our hearts unless you, by the Holy Spirit, make it effective in our hearts. And we pray that this truth here would be impactful in each of our lives in real and concrete ways. And Lord, we ask ultimately that you would show to us the glory of Jesus Christ, that more and more he might be everything to us, and for some here that they might see his glory for the very first time and be saved. And we ask for amazing grace in this way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we come to a passage here which is one about authority, and, and even that word, just the hearing of it, authority, it can elicit uh, all kinds of different responses in each of our minds and our hearts. Uh, authority. We react to it in a variety of ways, and, and this has always been the case. I mean, we just have to think back the past few years, COVID-19. I mean, how much discussion was there surrounding the nature of authority? Within the Christian world, the topic of debate had frequently become, when do we respect it and when do we not? And the justification here or there, does one authority supersede another? Is authority being abused or is it not? Doesn't matter. And the issue becomes this heated topic of discussion for we generally don't really have a problem with authority unless it clashes with what we want for ourselves, which is another kind of authority. Uh, we're witnessing now, uh, this now in the realm of medicine, whether uh, internal, a person's internal authority should be viewed as stronger than anything external. And if what we feel within takes precedence almost, almost over almost anything else. Uh, physical body parts and human biology included. Uh, my body, my choice is really a declaration of one's internal authority. And now I'm not trying to open up a can. I, I'm just making an argument that the topic of authority really determines almost everything about each one of us. 
It's a contemporary issue for sure, but it really is an age-old one as well. Where we find it, what we submit ourselves to, uh, it really impacts every single detail of each of our lives. And it is in this last week of Jesus' own life before the cross that he is making the argument for his own authority. At the beginning of the week, he rides in triumphantly on a donkey while listening to and not rejecting of the praises of the people around him, Palm Sunday. As they declare him, whether they're realizing the significance of what they are saying or not, they are declaring him to be the king, a title in which authority is implicitly intertwined. Uh, A day or so after that, Jesus enters into the temple, and with authority, he drives out the ones who have made a mockery of the religious system, saying, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I mean, who gives Jesus the right to say something like that? What gives to him the right to receive worship? Uh, What gives him the right to tell us to live like this and not like that and spend my money over here and not over there and raise my kids this way and live in marriage in that way and declare that somehow he is the only way to life and life eternal? Uh, How can Jesus act the way that he acts? How can he say what it is that he says? Uh, All of this boils down really to the issue of authority. And as we witness how the people in our text respond to that authority, it tells us what is within the human heart And likewise, it is our own personal response to Jesus that reveals to us what is within each of ours. And so we begin reading in verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Uh, The question of our passage is, by what authority does Jesus do these things, and who is it that authorized him to do these things? These are the main set of questions within this text. But before we get into it, I want you to notice first what Jesus is currently doing in the last week of his life. Verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. What is it that Jesus is doing in the final week of his life? He's simply teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Before he's going to hang up on the cross for the sins of his people, he's going to teach and preach to the people. You know, as time uh, goes on and, and we can visit ministries over there and over here and talk to people about what the church really needs to do to be effective and, and potent in this unbelieving world. And people can discuss Christianity's dwindling influence and yada, yada, and blah, 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 until they're blue in the face. I think it's here very refreshing to see the Son of God in his final hours simply teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Because we're often tempted to think that the more powerful and the more effective ministries are unrelated to these very things. Uh, But let's get more creative instead. Let's be a little bit more innovative. And teaching and preaching the gospel becomes like the spinach of ministry. Yes, we know it's good. It's just not all that tasty. And people really prefer almost anything else while shoving that to the corner of their plates. That Jesus' final week might be better spent doing something else. I mean, capitalize on your miracle ministry, Jesus. That's what drew the crowds in in the first place. Uh, it's memorable, it's, it's sensational, it's exciting, it's, it's sexy, if you will. I, I know you've raised the dead in the past and healed various ailments throughout your ministry, but how about this? If you walk on water while raising the dead and kind of heal people from the crowds simply by pointing at them 
or winking at them. Uh, kind of like a grand finale of a fireworks show. I mean, it's your last week, Jesus. Go really big. Or how about, at the very least, flip the topic. We've already heard about the coming kingdom, repentance of sin, our need of forgiveness, blah, blah, blah. How about teach instead about Roman occupation? Or venture more into politics and discuss this movement and that one and, and the racial inequity that we as Jewish people are experiencing in the first century because we are Roman occupied. Let's talk about something that's more in vogue. I mean, this is a huge crowd in Jerusalem for the Passover. Let's spice things up for your last hurrah. But here we find Jesus one day, the text says, as if this is what he always seems to do. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, dot, 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 as if to hint that this is really at the core of his ministry. Now, authenticating miracles are not unimportant, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I think that there is a certain honor, brothers and sisters, to be found doing the same as Jesus did in the final week of his life when it comes to the ordinary and regular ministry of the church of Jesus Christ that we teach his word, and that we preach his gospel. And let me encourage you with a testimony I heard from a seminary student in Japan who is really living on a very meager budget so that he might finish school to enter into the pastorate where he will live off a very meager salary in a country with very few Christians and therefore very little monetary offering. But we were talking about our own conversion stories over bowls of raw men, and, and Kenji had told him that his is because he noticed a pretty girl, his wife, Nellyanne, he noticed a pretty girl going into a Bible study, only the time that he decides to go, she's not there. And the Lord that night began a process to save him instead through the hearing of the gospel. I mean, that was it. Kenji began to hear it under the power of the Holy Spirit. And this uh, Japanese seminary student responds of his own friend in Singapore who on a Sunday, uh, this person really needed to use a restroom. And everything on that Sunday was closed except the church and rushing into the church to use their bathroom. He stuck around long enough to hear the teaching and preaching of the gospel and he was saved that very day. I mean, can you believe it? But isn't that what the Bible tells us? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know, sometimes we can act shocked as if testimonies like this can even happen, which probably tells us a little bit about where we rank the effectiveness of different kinds of ministries. We are consistently being bombarded with these subtle messages that we need to love people more and preach and teach less. We need to do more and talk less. Less of this and more of that, which is more concrete. And of course, brothers and sisters, we're called to love in word and in deed, and not only in word, but all of these can act as these subtle attacks at the centrality of the preaching and teaching of the word of God and can lower our view of what Jesus himself is doing in the very last week of his life. You know, teaching the people and preaching the gospel is, is not the spinach of the ministry. It, it really is the meat and the potatoes. It's the gravy and the rice. And this is the very thing that Jesus does within the temple after he drives the other people out of it, as if to show that this is the very priority of the place, the temple, where humanity is supposed to meet with God himself. I hope it never is that we would be ashamed of the regular ministry and that it would be said of our church family as well, that one day, as they do almost all the days, they were teaching the people and preaching the gospel. 
Uh, but back to the main question of authority, which is posed to Jesus here, and it's two-pronged. Chief priests, scribes, and elders, they come up to him and they say to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, in and of themselves, these are very good questions to ask. I mean, we should always be interested in the validity of authority always. And so these are excellent questions. But this trio of people, chief priests, scribes, and elders, are not asking with any kind of honesty. They have a different motivation than true inquiry. And we know this because just two or so verses prior in chapter 19 and verse 47, the text tells us there, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. That's Jesus. This group of people are the ones who want Jesus dead. They want him out of the picture. Why? Because he is messing with their lives and their setup that they have. The people that used to look to them for leadership and used to place them on a pedestal and used to view them with a kind of reverence and awe and respect to the point where these priests, scribes, and elders held quite a bit of sway and authority over the lives of the people. The people now instead are hanging on to every one of Jesus' words. His influence is growing and our power is waning. And he just threw out all the currency changers and the people who have made religion a business, which is our business. Jesus is taking away our moneymaker. Jesus is taking away our influence haver. And so what is happening here is this, this clash of authorities, the chief priests, scribes, elders, they want to retain their own authority. And Jesus' authority comes colliding into their own, for they know, perhaps better than many people today, that only one authority can really stand head and shoulders above the rest. What is happening is that Jesus' claim on the people is eclipsing their claim on the people. And again, we generally don't have a problem with authority unless it clashes with what we want for ourselves, which is another kind of authority. And so this trio interrupts Jesus' preaching and teaching, and they don't even want to let him finish. They come upon him suddenly, and the, the nuance of the verb there, came up, they came up on him. And they do want to kill him, but they can't yet. And so they try to kill him with words and discredit him publicly instead so that they might turn the people against him. Now this is where the authenticating miracles come into play. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave to you this authority? Uh, Luke has been very systematic in displaying the authority of Jesus over everything in creation and as creator himself. Uh, turn with me to Luke 8. And in the narrative of Luke 8, we can begin in verse 22. We see there Jesus uh, calming a storm, which demonstrates his authority over the physical realm, over nature. Right after that, he comes into contact with a demon-possessed man where not one or two, but a legion of demons has been oppressing him. And they all beg Jesus really for easier treatment. Why? Because he is not only authoritative over the physical realm, but he is also authoritative over the spiritual realm. Right after that, a woman whom no physician could help for 12 straight years, even though she spent all her money trying to find the best of them. At just a mere touch of the corner of his cloak, the woman's condition is eradicated instantly, which is to say that Jesus is also authoritative over the human body. 
And it's right in the midst of that that Jairus' 12-year-old daughter dies, and yet Jesus beckons him to believe, and then Jesus raises that little girl from death to life, which proves his authority over death and life. I mean, Luke is being very systematic here. Authority over nature, authority over the spiritual realm, authority over the human body, and authority over life and death. This is comprehensive, and that's on purpose. Now, even more so, when we dig a little bit deeper, it gets even crazier. I mean, 12 years of bleeding for the woman and 12 years of living for the little girl that dies and rises again. It means that 12 years prior, a woman began to bleed. And 12 years prior, a little girl was born. All so that these two might testify to the very authority of Jesus Christ in this intertwined circumstance. It's not by accident that the two narratives and life stories are wrapped together to show Jesus' sovereignty overall. And at some point, we each of us have to make a call. By what authority does Jesus do these things? And who is it that gave to him this authority? I mean, Jesus is Lord of all. The evidence is everywhere. And this is a big reason, if not the reason, why Luke even writes this book that we are studying to begin with. I mean, this question really almost doesn't even need to be asked. But the religious elites ask this question in this way because they want him to say it. Say it out loud, Jesus. Say you're God. Claim it in front of all the people legally and explicitly so that we can formally charge you with blasphemy. And then you have to appear in our legal courtroom. That's our jurisdiction at a trial that we hold authority in so that we can indict you because the entire purpose of what we're doing here and asking you the questions is really to destroy you. I think that's the end game. They want to kill Jesus, and this is the mechanism for how they want to do it. Now, brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus face opposition, um, we must not be surprised if we find ourselves facing opposition when we seek to do the Lord's will. I think this is important to note because often when we face difficulties, we are tempted to think, I must be on the wrong path because this path is filled with obstacles when perhaps it may really be evidence instead that you're actually on the right one. Jesus is facing opposition almost his entire life. And when you face opposition, it might not mean that you're outside of God's will, but you're right in the middle of it. But, but Jesus, he faces a dilemma with this question. Uh, do I answer the way that they want me to answer? Then I get hauled off to trial and, and potentially a different kind of death than the cross before me. Do I not answer and therefore discredit and even falsify the basis of what I'm doing here? Do I deny my own authority? These seem to be the only two options. But notice how Jesus is lovingly strategic in the way that he answers their uh, question. Verse 3, we continue. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. The question of authority is answered here with the evidence of that authority. The evidence that God gives to us, a, a thorough validation of Jesus the Christ, the evidence that God gives is through his forerunner, John the baptizer. Now, now, 
Jesus frequently answers questions with questions of his own, uh, really to get to the heart of the matter. And rather than answer their attack and play into their trap and, and be forced to answer in one of two ways, Jesus instead would like them to provide their own answer to the evidence that God has already given of Jesus' own authority. Uh, therefore, to expose what is within their hearts in the process. And the proof that Jesus points them to here, I think, is very interesting. Uh, perhaps more authenticating than any powerful miracle. Uh, more validating than seeing a leper made clean or a paralytic now walking. Uh, more certifying than uh, even a little 12-year-old girl being raised from death to life at her funeral. What is perhaps more authenticating than any of these powerful miracles is the message of heaven itself from a messenger sent from God himself. And this is what Jesus is pointing uh, exactly to that. He points them to John the Baptist and the entirety of his ministry as a foreigner to Jesus. And what was John's message from heaven to earth? That the kingdom of God is at hand. And to prepare for it, humanity really needs to repent. Repent, repentance, really this recognition of our sinfulness, uh, an admission of our own inadequacy, our inability to measure up, this owning of our own iniquity, that the reason why there is this chasm and that there is this brokenness of relationship between me and God, the reason why this relationship has been so ruined is entirely on my end. And with that, repentance contains this desire Within the repentance contains this desire to turn away from that kind of living and turn to God instead. A desire that is not mere good intentions, but one that is really coupled with concrete action, which is why John called out to the people for repentance and to be baptized thus. And John wasn't in a strategic place in the metropolitan city. No, he was out in the boonie wilderness. And John was not trendy by any means. No, he wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. And yet the masses walked miles and miles and poured into that wilderness to be baptized into a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, can water wash away people's sins? No. John's ministry was a ministry of the preparation of the human heart for the true Messiah was coming, which John declares himself, Luke 3, 16, one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Elsewhere, John says in John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Water can't wash away sin. It's not that powerful. The blood of the Lamb of God shed upon the coming cross is the only thing potent enough to take away our stains. The sinless giving his life for the sinful. And it was at Jesus' own baptism at the hands of John the Baptist where the heavens are opened up and the Spirit descends and a voice comes from above. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Luke 3.22 this is the authentication of Jesus' very authority to do the things he did and to say the things he said and to preach and teach with authority and to drive out shadiness from the temple and to set up shop and preach the gospel. The heavenly message of the coming kingdom and the repentance necessary to enter into it from a messenger sent to earth to proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, this ministry should have convinced the chief priests, elders, and scribes as the main proof that Jesus has the authority to do the things that he is doing. 
And so the question, was a baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's a very searching question. And it is really, at the same time, a very gracious question as well. It's a gracious uh, question and invitation of opportunity if they would only see it as such. For either Jesus' ministry is entirely man-made or it's actually a message from heaven to earth. And this is a moment for these trio of leaders to contemplate that very thing. Uh, But instead we find tragedy as this question exposes the hearts of the ones attacking Jesus. They huddle up not to investigate the claims, but they huddle up to mitigate the damage because they're trapped. It didn't work. And now we're feeling trapped instead. I mean, this is a group of religious elites. And here we find them more political than they are spiritual. And here they're more concerned with the population's opinion of them than they are concerned with the truth itself. If we say from heaven, I mean, even these guys know that all John talked about was Jesus. If we say from heaven, then Jesus is of heaven. But if we say of man, then the people, they're going to stone us. For even the unspiritually educated masses understood that John was a prophet sent from heaven. I mean, how condemning is this, that the people had more spiritual awareness than the religious leadership? And so what do they decide to answer? We don't know, which is a lie, isn't it? For they're unwilling to state what it is they really believe, and so they say, nada. I mean, this is crazy. You have the religious leadership of the day too afraid to share what they really believe, and so they say nothing. That's not entirely new. It's not really foreign to us nowadays, now is it? That oftentimes, perhaps a more famous religious leadership can be too afraid to share what it is that we really believe, and so they say nothing, or they change the subject. Uh, Too afraid to take any kind of stance because of the potential fallout. Matthew Henry notes this, "It's, it's not strange if those that are governed by reputation and secular interest imprison the plainest truths and smother and stifle the strongest of convictions. And I don't know at the end of the day that we want leaders who are tossed to and fro by popular opinion, now do we? And to follow leaders without much conviction, uh, conviction enough to make it public. You know, no matter what the response is from the watching world, I think we each need to know this, that there is a God in heaven who sees everything that we do. And when all is said and done, he will acknowledge the faithfulness of his own people who cared more about his opinion than they did about anyone else's. But note Jesus' options before us. This is not just for the leaders here, but for every person on earth as well. That Jesus' authority is either human or it is divine. Those are really the only two options. And if it is divine, it must be higher and stronger than any other authority. And if Jesus is merely human, then we don't really have to listen to him now, do we? But if it is divine, then he does have the right to do what he did and speak what he spoke and command us how to live and direct even our hearts at the desire level of what to want. And we should either submit to it or we should deny it and not try and live in this in-between. I mean, at the very least, these guys knew that only one authority can ultimately stand. And there is no halfway point. And so the greatest proof of Jesus' authority here is a foreigner, John the Baptist, and his ministry, a message from heaven given by a messenger sent of God. And we continue uh, with the tragic conclusion, and we'll close with this in verse 8. 
And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, this is a, a sad ending, a tragic conclusion to Jesus' interaction with the spiritual leadership of Israel. They're not willing to listen to Jesus, despite all the data, despite all the evidence, and Jesus himself is unwilling to engage them further. You know, there's a point of continual rejection uh, where the Son of God says enough is enough. But we mustn't lose sight of the timeline. Jesus has proven himself. He's still being rejected, and it is in the middle of the final week of his life. And what does Jesus go on and do? He continues to carry the cross to the point where on Friday of this week, that cross is going to carry him. You know, we, we often don't know what is within our hearts until we've been given a little bit of power and authority. I think most of us in this room are at least old enough to see it when, when people grow up or become financially free or, or free from maybe their parents' uh, uh, restrictions in another way or when they get that title or they have some kind of power, uh, that that is when we really get to see what's within their hearts. I mean, all of us can act humble and nice and compliant when we don't have any other options. But with real power in our hands, we are free to be who we really want to be. And there we see the human heart. And remember the old adage, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, which is really an indictment of what can often be found within the human heart. But Jesus, here in our text, he literally has absolute power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. And yet what does Jesus decide to do with all of it? He still decides to go to suffer and die upon a criminal's cross on behalf of a people who should be hanging there instead to receive the wrath of God, which is due to us, upon himself. With all authority and power, he decides to go there in our place. He decides to love and to extend amazing grace to a people who least deserve it. You see, Jesus' authority is not like other people's. We can recoil simply at the sound of the word authority because we so often see the abuses of it. We shake our fists at the man because we're not the man. And if we were, people might shake their fists at us. But Jesus, with all power and authority under heaven and earth, goes out of love to the cross to pay for our sin because his love is greater than our sin. And he is more willing to forgive than we are willing to come to him for forgiveness and this is where this recognition of his authority in the final week of his life, this is where it's supposed to melt us. Because Jesus' authority is a loving authority. It is the authority of love. And therefore, faith, belief, genuine, it trusts in his love for us so that we might even trust him when we can't make sense of things. We might trust him more than we trust our own feelings that he might be more powerful in our lives and his word be more authoritative than anything else inside or outside. That when you tell me this, Jesus, I really believe it, even when my eyes can't see the end of it or make sense of it. When you tell me to love like this, sacrificially, or to spend like this, or to stay pure like this, to forsake the world like this, uh, to not be concerned with getting ahead, but to serve, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, I really believe it because I know you really love me. 
Uh, this authority changes how we live, changes how we raise our children. It changes what we invest in and what kind of returns we are looking for. It changes what we do with our time. It changes how much something has hold over us. Uh, I mean, this is uh, potentially a small group question to ask as you gather later in the week. Where in my life am I not trusting Jesus' love? Where in my life am I afraid to hand this one thing over to be under his authority rather than mine? Because it is at the end of the day, belief is really trust. And faith is really submission to the one who submitted himself to death for us that we might love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our minds and all our soul and all our strength, even just a mere fraction of how much he first loved us. And it is to this end that we teach people about Jesus and preach this gospel until he returns again. Would you please close with me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use your word and the power of your Holy Spirit that in our heart of hearts, we might see him for who he really is. We thank you, Lord, that the king you have given to us is full of power and full of authority in which he uses all of that in love. And I pray for our church family that you would keep us faithful to the end, keep us joyous to the end, help us trust in your love for us in Jesus Christ more than we trust even our own feelings. And I know that there are people in this room now that are going through a variety of different things. I pray that you would lift their chins and direct their eyes to the Son of God that they might trust in him and believe in him more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.